0: pick up here at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians. We'll read the entirety of the first chapter, which is 10 verses, and we're going to camp out here for the next several weeks, as is our custom to walk through a book of the Bible together and just let it speak. Let it set the agenda. Let it raise topics that maybe you or I wouldn't intentionally go toward or talk about, right? Let, let it do this. And, and there's a couple things I want to encourage you along the way. This, the way we do this is meant to be a protective measure for you. It's meant to be a protective measure for you from me. Or the person up here teaching. That I don't just get up here and kind of pontificate on the, the, the latest thing that I'm excited about or annoyed with. But instead, we open the text and we let it guide us. And we let it set the agenda. And if it, it, if it raises a topic for us to discuss and think about, we do that. We let it set the agenda. And that's a protective measure. So as I usually try to say at the beginning of every single series that we start, is that uh, I, I, we want to make a radical commitment to unoriginality when we open this text it's not we're not looking for something new right uh, if if you if you open the bible and you and you and you're looking for a new or creative or innovative way to think about god uh, i want to encourage you the the first christians had a name for that and it was called a heretic Right? So, so if you're like looking for some new, but creative, and innovative way to see the Bible, like a new lens to understand it, I'm going to encourage you be, be careful. We want to actually have a radical commitment to unoriginality, and we dig into the Bible for something not that's new, that will fade, but something that is timeless, something that, that is original, something that is old and ancient, something that connects us to an ancient sense of who God is and what he's done for us. And that's our goal when we open the Bible. And as a result, then, that means I I would love to put any resources into your hands that I can. There is nothing that I have ever said that is original. I have never, God God, God has, I think, not entrusted me with any original ideas. Two reasons. Uh, the first one uh, is because, as, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, but secondly, I think he knows I would probably try to get like rich or famous off of it if I had a new original idea. So so what's entrusted to me, I think, is to kind of open up some of this stuff. My notes are extensively footnoted, so if you want to get your hands on more resources to see what it would look like to dig more deeply into First and Second Thessalonians, I would love to pour as many resources on you as I can. I would love to answer any questions if you find yourself saying like, that was really clever or that was really innovative, I probably didn't come up with it. And I would love to point you towards uh, the more clever, more innovative, more uh, more genius people that kind of inform my reading of this text. So we're going to read the first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians looking for something ancient, beginning to think about what it looks like to be Christians and what it means to be a church set apart for the glory of Christ. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica. We'll learn more and more about this in the next few weeks. We'll map it out for you, but I just want to even begin with the title. It says, The First Letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My prayers, this becomes more than just ink on a page, and it becomes the very words of God for the people of God. I want to introduce you Maybe if this is the first time for you to, like, walking through a text, specifically a New Testament text, we haven't done uh, an epistle or a letter, as you'll, as you'll hear us call it, like uh, an epistle, a, a letter of this particular age. Like, we haven't done this in a while. And so I even want to encourage you, you might ask yourself, why would we read a letter like this? Why would we walk through something like this? If this was a letter written by an apostle to a church with not our name on it, it didn't say the first letter of Paul to Connection Church, Right? or even to the church at Sioux Falls. I right? didn't, didn't say anything like that. It was written a long time ago for a church for a specific purpose. And you might even ask yourself, why are we doing this? What's this got to do with us? And your temptation, and I would even argue like right now these kind of, these kind of uh, opposition or kind of, uh, kind of reservations that may already be raising in your mind of why that, that's about them and this is about us. And I want to encourage you, this is, this is the practice of the New Testament church. We saw this as we walked through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And he said at the very end of the letter, this, this important thing, this kind of picture of what his letters ought to look like. He says, give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha." And the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's this other letter from the Laodiceans that we don't know about. We don't, we, it probably got destroyed. Remember, the Romans immediately tried to destroy uh, the Christian movement as it began to rise. They immediately began to persecute. Uh, we hear stories like, uh, like the Emperor Nero who began to like, blame all sorts of awful things on the Christians so that the city and the Romans would turn on them, set them on fire, persecute them, use them as bait in the Colosseum with all sorts of lions and tigers and bears. And so they, uh, very quickly, as the, as the church began to explode, and as it began to expand, the Romans immediately started to suppress this, started to destroy the resources that the churches had access to. And that means there are even letters we don't, ha- we can't, we don't know what happened to. People probably died trying to keep them, but the, the ones we do have are a result of people dying to hide them so that we can get access to them. And you see their purpose. Paul wrote this, this powerful, this powerful letter to the Colossians, and he says, look, I need you to read this, but not just you, I need you to pass this around, because what I say to you, the, the things I have for you, are going to be important for other churches and other people who are following Jesus. And that's why we open this book as well. I'm not from Thessalonica, right? I assume you probably aren't either. And yet we see that we don't just simply look to this letter, there's a sense in which we look through it. We look right through it. We sit in the place of, of the Thessalonians and then we begin to see if there is a teaching of the apostles. Remember that's what the churches did, right? They committed themselves in Acts two forty two to to the to the breaking of bread, right? They, to the prayers, to fellowship, and then to the teaching of the apostles. And so we're looking through this like a lens back to what the apostles would have taught us as we open up first and second Thessalonians together. We let it shape us, we let it begin to, to begin to steer our own paths. And my encouragement to you, here's what I hope as we kind of open this book. The other letters you could read, like the book of like the, the letter to the Romans, the letter to the, even the Colossians, they're like these theological powerhouses, right? It's like, wow, like God is doing this amazing thing from all eternity. God is working all things together for good, right? Think of this theological manifesto that the Book of Romans is, and then like Colossians is like Jesus is the preeminent one; he's the firstborn of all of creation. He's pre-existed and he's the firstborn of this new creation that God's bringing about, right? That's not what the Thessalonians necessarily does. And then there are other letters, like for example, to the Gal- or excuse me, to the Galatians, that are real like juicy, like a lot of there's a lot of, there was a, like a lot of arguments that were going on, right? Philippians was probably a divided church. He literally at the end of Philippians he literally calls two people out. and He says, "You, youodia syntiki, um, get along." Right? Like, imagine if you got a letter from the Apostle Paul and I'm reading it, and we're like, "Oh yeah, Jesus is this and Jesus is this," and then like, "No, you and you stop fighting." Right? Like, whoa! You know, like, it's this. This is this is powerful. Right? The same thing in Philippians that kind of division, or even we see like the topics of all sorts of sexual ethics comes up in First and Second Corinthians really really powerful uh, influential kinds of things that the Christian faith approaches they exist in like Galatians the nature of the gospel those are all really like salacious juicy like a lot of a lot of conflict that's not here in fact there's a sense in which amongst all the letters written to the New Testament churches i want to encourage you to embrace that this might be the most use my word carefully here boring the most boring there's no fight. In fact, what he does for the most part in this book, and we'll see this, is he just affirms and encourages a church. Hey, all that good stuff you're doing, keep doing it. Hey, I'm encouraged by you. I hear about your reputation. And this is encouragement. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways, this is a fairly boring book. And he just says, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Patiently, awake Jesus, or patiently await Jesus' return. And the reason I think that's powerful, here's, here's what I would say is my, my hope and prayer for you and I as a church, I hope this is the kind of letter the Apostle Paul would write to us, right? Not a, like, oh, you guys are divided about who Jesus is, Right? And he had to correct, you're fighting over things that are not the gospel, and had to hey, silence, be, be quiet about this, or, or like, hey, you people are doing crazy things, right? Think of the, the Paul calls out people in, in Corinth, and he's like, there's a man who is apparently sleeping with his father's wife, and they're like, was that his mother or stepmother? Is it worse one way or the other? And they're like, and, and they were celebrating their sexual liberation, right? And he had to go, stop, like that's not, that doesn't glorify Christ. You're, you're not seeing men and women relating as a parable to the gospel like he says in Ephesians. And my hope is that this is the kind of letter that would be written to someone like us. Like in the next 10, 20, 50 years, you'd look around at what God's doing in our church and just go, man, how encouraging is this? How awesome is it to just revel in what God does? How awesome is it just to sit back and wait for Jesus to come back and yearn for Him to be Lord? How cool would it be for, for, for someone just to simply say, hey, I'm so, could you catch that? I'm, I'm so encouraged by what I hear about you. Do more. Everyone's heard about it. And so in a sense, I want to invite you into kind of a boredom with this. Like a very long, long obedient view of this. As we think about what a Christian is and what the church looks like, I encourage you to embrace this. He begins. He says, "Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy." This would have been most likely Silas. So next week we'll read through this, but because uh, because some of this becomes uh, irrelevant, it becomes relevant for us. If you want to, you can read as you, if you if you were here a few years ago. We walked through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and the entirety of the book of or the chapter of Acts chapter 17. Paul is on his way through these areas. He goes to Thessalonica, which is the capital city of Macedonia. He goes into a place, shares the gospel. Everyone gets excited about it. And like most times, uh, when Paul goes in and sees a, an amazing uh, reaction to the good news of Jesus, they start a riot. And they run him off. And then he goes down the street to the, to the Bereans. He's more, he's more comfortably received and he kind of, kind of relaxes, and then Paul, Silas, and Timothy kind of split up there. Silas and Timothy, or Sylvanus here, as it's translated, um, stay there in Thessalonica. And, and the Thessalonians find out that that riot starter is just down the road in the Bere- with the Bereans, and they take more people and start a riot in Berea. So when he got here, this was rough. So did you, did you catch that little bit there? He says, I, look, I know that there was something that happened in verse 6, and you received the word, did you catch that? With much affliction. Right? That's a very polite way of saying, uh, remember the riot? Remember the riot we had? Remember the, like, the looting and the, and the violent mob that, that took place because of what Jesus started? That's a polite way of saying, hey, we've had a rocky, ro- uh, rocky start. It's a rough beginning. But I'm encouraged because the way that the gospel came, even when you received it with much affliction, has been fruitful. So let's begin to walk through this. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Again, look in Acts chapter 17. You, hear the, you can see the narrative of this entire story, who this church is, how it began. But you'll notice something that's, that's common, and we'll talk more about this as well. Is like, at this particular time when you wrote a formal letter, you identified yourself first and then the, the, uh, the, the person you're writing the letter to last, right? So I guess, I mean, if I were to illustrate this, like if this were, I don't know, if I were to put this in the mail, right? Think about what I would do. If I was going to mail you a letter, I would stick your name and address right dead center, wouldn't I? And then over here in the top left corner, what would I do? I'd put my my address. And so in some sense, when we write a letter, I would say, dear so-and-so, and and at the end, I would say, sincerely, Jonathan. The custom for this particular time in, in history would have been to write a letter a little bit different. You would have identified yourself first. you would have put your name in the middle of, of the letter, on, on the outside of the envelope, and you would have put your name at the beginning, so that the people would know, this is who's writing this letter. Now you know this now, because again, the return address is on the top left corner. Or, as you also see, there's usually a letterhead, right? This is who's writing this letter. And this is you see, this is his letterhead. Look, Paul, Silas or Sylvanus is here with me. Timothy's with me. And we're writing you a letter, and we wish something for you. And as is customary at this particular time, there's a blessing. Now, Jewish scholars would give a, a blessing of shalom, peace, right? Uh, maybe a Roman writer would, would probably write a letter, a formal or, or academic letter, and would have said something like, I don't know, like, peace in Rome, right? Pax Romana, or, or like, long live Caesar, something like that. But Paul starts with something powerful, doesn't he? He makes a theological claim when he... In, when he greets these people. Did you catch it? Grace. Grace to you in peace. That word, we'll, we'll see as it's unpacked for the rest of this entire book, that word's important for us as Christians, isn't it? It's an unmerited favor. It is an unmerited, unearned. In fact, we were in a spot where we were dead in our trespasses. We were running from God, rebelling from him in sin, and God didn't just you know relent to not show us a justice on us, and He didn't just relent to show us mercy, but instead He lavished His reward upon us. The way we talk about this it would be like if you got pulled over for speeding, and not only did you not get a ticket, you got off, but then instead of having to pay two hundred dollars for a ticket, the the police officers handed you two hundred dollars. That's grace, right? Like I deserve to be in debt for this amount, and now I somehow have it. That's grace. It's not just mercy a relenting of justice. But it's grace, it's a gift, it's, a, it's something lavished upon you that you don't deserve. So verse 2 it says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Then you start to get a picture of what a church would look like, right? Sitting around, thanking God for what he's doing around us. Sitting around and say, hey, did you, did you meet so-and-so? Did you meet them? Did you know this person is in my gospel community? Or you know this person that's been attending our church? Man, thank God, aren't they a blessing? Isn't it amazing to see what God's doing? Or my favorite thing is we sit around and get to watch God shape us. I can look around even now and think about, I know what you looked like a year ago. I know what you looked like two, three years ago. Some of you even more than that. And I can sit around and go, isn't it amazing? Don't, like, thank God. Thank God that he's not up there and out there, but thank God, look look at the way he's changing lives. Look at the way he's granting joy in places where there once was sorrow He's granting confidence in his finished work where there once was nothing but fear. Every time, mentioning you in my prayers, remembering remembering before God, our Father, and let's list three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Where? In the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important. Over 200 times in the New Testament, this phrase is found. In Christ. In Jesus. In him. In the beloved is what Ephesians would even say. In Jesus, in Christ, in Him, over and over and over and over and over again. Because what we have is not in and of ourselves. It's freely given. It's only in Christ. And when we're united with Him, we have things like this. So here's, I would just even start here. Like, he begins to thank God. He begins to thank God for the things that He is doing around Him. He begins to thank God for the fruit of this by means of this opening thanksgiving, he's drawing attention to the glory that God deserves. There's a powerful thing I think we see here. There's an introduction to thanksgiving, not just for what God has done. But here's what will be profound for you because again, this is a church-centric doc- document. The New Testament is a church-centered piece of information, a library devoted for the church and the building up of the church. And even here, he invites us to think about not just thanking God for what he's done for me individually, but thanking God for the people around me. What a model, right? I mean, you're sitting on a chair that you probably didn't put there. You're, you're, you're probably benefiting this morning. You probably drank a cup of coffee or tea that, like, you didn't brew. Someone else did it for you. All right? this is powerful for us. For, like, uh, for the last few years, we've been... You know, there are people that would get up and they would roll into Rosa Parks Elementary. We would get a torch and thaw off the, like the, the trailer to get everything out of it. I'm, I'm not kidding. You, we, have a, we, had a, we keep a torch in my car and we would thaw the locks so they would open, thaw out the trailer, pry it open with a pry bar so it would come out so that everything that's frozen inside and sub-zero, people with like, I and mean, we brought extra gloves, but some people are silly and they, they wouldn't wear them. They'd pull out, they'd pull out frozen stuff and they'd set everything up so that you and I could enjoy the labors of someone else. And that's, that's even just the beginning, isn't it? Like, like this, do, do, do you see that? Can you think of the ways in which you might have already benefited from that? Work of faith. These people, not because they're necessarily nice people, not because they didn't have something better to do on a Sunday morning, namely... Right? Like, like, it's not like they had nothing to do. It's not like they couldn't think of anything better to do, but they have a work and a service, a labor, a steadfastness. When I say steadfastness, I mean, think, think like plowing and shoveling snow, wondering if someone's going to open the building for us, right? You see this? This is the heritage of even our church. And I would encourage you, like, ask God, if even begin there, ask God if he would begin to open your eyes to to even seeing all the ways in which someone else is serving you. Someone else. Again, not because you deserve it. You don't. You're not that special. And someone served you. Why? Why? Because they have faith, they have love, and they have hope in what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And their reverence, their love for Jesus is so great it overflows, and you get to benefit from it. I want you to be encouraged. This this is already something we can begin to do, right? There are things here that that kind of cast a vision for what it would look like to be a church that looks like this, but there are ways in which I want to do exactly what he does. Keep doing it. Be encouraged. God has done some amazing things in the life of this church, and I wasn't a part of hardly any any of it. It was the service, the faith, the hope, and the love of other people who were willing to serve and be obedient to what God calls them to. May that continue to be the case. May we be a people that regularly, in your prayers, doesn't just say, God, thank you for all the things that benefit me. God, help me with all the things that benefit me. God, smooth out all the things in my path. God, God, serve me God, bend your will to me, but may we be a people marked by constant, I don't even miss it, you gotta catch that. Not like every once in a while, constantly, always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. May that be said of us, right? That today, even, even as you like, maybe as you eat, you're like, thank God for this food. That benefits you, but what if you would also in your, own heart, in, your, in your own heart and mind think, thank God for all the people who have served me, who have demonstrated God's mercy to me. I didn't deserve it, they have showed grace to me. Because God showed grace to them in Christ. Always. For all of you, constantly mentioning you in prayer. Verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, right? Brothers loved by God, you were beloved, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. I want to spend most of our time today, those first two pieces, that that the gospel comes to you, your love for God has now, your love of God is is evidence and that he has now chosen you and the gospel comes to us in word and in power. And so I want to spend most of the time there and next week we'll pick up the last two about like in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I think you'll find this, the good news of who Jesus is. And what he has done, that literally, you see that word there, gospel, is good news. The good news, of who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, confronts us with power and calls us to revel in the God who saves us. The good news of Jesus, it comes to us. All right, remember, remember when I told you we opened this Bible and we let it set the agenda because it brings a whole lot of topics that maybe I would probably be a coward and not want to talk about? Did you catch one of them? For we know, brothers loved by God, that what? He has chosen you. Right there. Predestination. The doctrine of what we would call election. God choosing you. This is important. Remember, we are a post-enlightenment society. We believe in the autonomous self. We believe that meaning in life typically comes from self-assertion self-expression, right? It's an anti-gospel sentiment. The problem's out there and the solution's in you. You heard this? Disney sells this a lot. It's pretty powerful, right? You just need to find yourself. You just need to express yourself. You just need to assert yourself. You need to have more self-esteem. You need to have higher self-confidence. Get this? So it says this is the air we breathe, right? It's the idea that like we are the autonomous self, right? And if something's broken, you can look inside yourself and fix it because you're snowflake, you're you're a princess, right? Okay. This is our, this is the this is the notion that we currently are are influenced by, and what and, and typically the 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 undertones of that it says this, the most important person in the world is you. And the most important decisions that will be made in the world will be made by you. And your love and your sense of being accepted will be predicated upon the people you choose to let into your life. The ones you allow in. Did you catch this? You're beloved by God. Why? Why are you beloved by God? I mean, how how would I even know this? He's chosen you. Now we'll dig into this for the rest of our time in First and Second Thessalonians, but I want to just at least begin to begin to think about something here. You see, there's, there's a regular occurrence, or this shows up on a regular basis. There's this kind of confrontation. The good news of Jesus, it really opposes you. At first, it really like, it confronts you, and it says something about you that if you're like me, you don't like to think about. Namely, that you're a person who needs help. You're a person who needs saving. You're a person who needs someone to take our play. Right? This is not a natural thing. right? I'm the, I'm the Stuart Smalley. You're good enough. right? You, you know what I'm saying? This, this, is, this, is my, this is my typical inclination. And we find something here that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus does, confronts us first with something about ourselves that we don't want to admit is true. It comes to you. God has chosen you. I just want you to consider the possibility that maybe the most amazing thing about you isn't something you've done. It's possible that the most amazing thing about you is something God did for you. The thing that gives you value isn't something that you build in yourself, right? You self think self-esteem, I esteem myself. Well, think about that. If you're, if you're a lousy person, then esteeming yourself is pretty, pretty worthless, right? think of it this way, like maybe you like basketball, I'll give you a sports analogy here, you don't need to like basketball to understand this, but right now basically, you know, give or take a few people, LeBron James is like the greatest basketball player in the world right now, I know, maybe, okay, maybe top five, whatever, okay, not going not to pick a fight, but if I said to you, right, if I, if, I, if I like said to you in front of all these people, this person's a really good basketball player, I mean, that might be worth, I don't know, a little bit? Like, oh, well, somebody esteems that person. But if LeBron James stood up here and said about you, this person's a good basketball player, it would be worth a whole lot more. Agreed? Because when someone great grants you esteem, it is great. And the greatness of esteem is proportionate to, to where it comes from. And so if I say, hey, this is a really good basketball player, that really, you shouldn't really believe that. That's not worth much. But if a great basketball player says you're a great basketball player, everyone immediately goes, whoa. There's some validity here. Multiply that times the infinite and matchless righteousness of God. Multiply that, that little concept that esteem is proportional to its source. Multiply that idea times the infinite magnitude of God's perfection. And then think about what it means when God, who is infinitely perfect and holy, eternal and matchless in nature, says, This one is mine. I want that one. Oh, friend, he's chosen you. And that ought to make you feel like, it be, did you catch that? Beloved by God. Me? <laughs> Have you met me? Are you kidding me? He says, we know, brothers, you're loved by God, he's chosen you. Well, then the next thing, well, how do I know that, right? How do I not just wallow in despair? Well, he's chosen that person and not me. God, you asked, because Paul wants to answer that. We know, verse 4, He's chosen you. How do we know? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but in power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So start there first. The gospel has come to you. And, And this is important, right? If we're thinking about what it means to be in Christ, chosen by God, out of His vast grace and love, then we're really asking a powerful question, what is a Christian? What does it even mean to be a Christian? And that's something that's pretty powerful. So maybe if you're in this room, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, right? Maybe you're like, I, I don't know that I believe in this Jesus. I don't know if that's really who I am. I'm really glad you're here. Maybe if you're in this room and you would say, I don't believe that. I'm really glad you're here. Because here's what I would even argue for you. You can't even be a non-Christian safely or intelligently unless you actually know what it means to be a Christian. And this is powerful. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Some of you wonder even that about yourselves, right? Am I a Christian? Am I, I, mean, am I loved by God? Am I chosen by God? Why are you, am I, how can I be sure? How can I know? And already when we begin to think about what a Christian is, what it means to be in Christ, one of the first things that happens, in fact, this is, this is what I noticed, even one of the first things that happens when people start to come in contact with our church is that they begin to lose their confidence that they even understand what it means to be a Christian. Been there? On a regular basis, people who have called themselves Christian for a long time come in contact with our church and then the first thing they wonder is like, I don't, am, I, am I a Christian? And I want to encourage you, that's actually quite common. That's why he says to the Thessalonians at least four things we ought to pray for and seek out so that we can answer that question with confidence. yes. So don't shy away from that. Because even other people, maybe like maybe you want to know what it means to be a Christian. You want to know what this good news, this gospel is. But then some of you maybe know that, and now you want to know what it looks like to lead other people to follow Jesus, to understand and to know this gospel. Because there's a, a pretty powerful thing here. It comes in word. The gospel comes to us in word. And you'll find out this, I think this is pretty powerful. Religious people agree with the words, Right? I say this is what this is who Jesus is, who God is, and religious people would agree. I agree. I'm going to do these things. Irreligious people would just simply disagree with the words, right? I'm standing up and I'm saying this is who Jesus is, and an irreligious person maybe you you would say like I disagree. I don't think you're right. But there's something powerful. Christians have received it as power. That that do you remember what I told you? It confronts. It actually hits. It actually makes an indention. It steamrolls even. Right? Like a religious person would go, I, I agree with these tenets and I'm going to follow them. An irreligious person would say, I disagree and I'm going to follow my own, own set of tenets. But a Christian is a person who receives the gospel, sees that it comes to them and, it ex- and experiences it as power. And so even now, maybe if you're in this room and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here because I I really want you to hear what it is that we believe. I want to kind of correct maybe what your own preconceived notions about what a Christian is might be. And and in fact, one of the first things that you and others who aren't Christian, right, you say I'm not a Christian, in order to say I'm not a Christian, presumes that you know what a Christian is. Right? Even to say I am irreligious or even to be unaffected by who Jesus is is to at least assume that you know what it is. And I want to encourage you. I want to like invite you to kind of a little bit of skepticism. I, if, if your first thought when, when you see that the gospel comes to you, it's not something that you go and get, but it actually gets you. If that begins to bother you, I want to I encourage you. We'll talk about this even a little bit. That's, that's a good thing. You're getting it. You're seeing its power. It actually is claiming something. And a lot of people who would say I'm not Christian presume they even know what that is. I would hear people say this on a regular basis. Well, I used to be a Christian. Right? I used to be a Christian. And now I'm not a Christian. right? I, used, I was raised in the church and I used to do that. But you know because of this, this, these decisions or this has happened and they would say something like, well, but I'm not a Christian anymore. I used to be a Christian. And I want to I push, I would go like, how do you know? Are you sure? You, you presume to know. You presume to know what it means to love and follow Jesus, but now that you, you, you are beyond that, that you're in some other place. And I would say, maybe not. Here's one I hear a lot. And this applies to most people. A Christian hurt me. A Christian harmed me. And I would encourage you. Are you sure? Are you sure that was a Christian? I hear this a lot. The church, the church harmed me. I'm so sorry. I, I, I love you and I'm so glad you've even like come this close to a group of people calling themselves the church. I, kn- I know what an act of courage that is. And I know you would say like, the church has hurt me. And I want to ask you, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure they were functioning as Christians? Are you, were they functioning as the church when they did that? I mean, they may have called themselves that, but notice we get to see what it really means to be a Christian. The gospel comes to us; it is power to us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and grants us conviction. And word, power, spirit, conviction. And I won't even encourage you. It it, it might be possible. Like you know, the church burned me. Like were they functioning as the church in that moment? I mean, in the strictest sense of the word, were they being the people called aside? to glorify Christ? And then you begin to see, like you can't even really be a non-religious person until you assume you know what a Christian is. And in many cases, like there's a difference between just a religious group of people who agree with this, the word you see here that, that comes, the gospel comes in word, but then there's a difference between even them and irreligious people who maybe disagree with those words as opposed to a person who is receiving that word as Power. And you're a Christian, it says here, because the gospel comes to you. You're a believer. Now now you see this elsewhere, like chapters 2 and 3, he'll refer again. We're going to, again, we stick to this, the gospel of God, Jesus and our gospel. You heard our gospel. You received our gospel. You received an essential message. And one of the ways that I would say that we can understand this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul tells a, a powerful word. He says the the in their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, right? People who would not call themselves Christians or believers. It says, in order to keep them from seeing the what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what is the gospel? It is, it is the light of the glory of Christ. Now that word glory is really interesting. In its most literal form, the word glory simply means weight. So we would say something like, something has gravity, right? Right? Like that's very important. You know, that's a, that, that, that's a, that, that idea, that's, that has gravity. It has mass. It is massive, right? Massivity. I heard one person make up a word and say that. I liked it. The, the, the gospel has a massivity to it, right? And there's a, it's, a, it's a weight. And so when we see here the gospel comes to us, it's experienced not only as a word, but as a powerful and weighty thing. And you come to find out that you don't really just kind of like want to know the gospel. You don't just kind of seek out Jesus, but you see it actually seeks you out. <laughs> you, there's a funny thing that happens here. You don't just like start, you know, understanding the gospel. The gospel actually starts to understand you. You begin to see what it is that God is doing. Even then, you, in the beginning, you start looking at Jesus, right? Right? And here's the thing, you think you're investigating it, right? For some of you right now, you think you're investigating who Jesus is. You think you're like weighing the options, and you're kind of like, I don't know about Jesus, and, and you're, and you're kind of wondering, you're investigating Jesus, and you come to find out something amazing. Jesus is investigating you. And we experience that as a weight. We experience that as a power. Not just a one among many different intellectual things that we can assent to. You're being investigated. You come to sense that something is actually seeking you. And the gospel, as we see here, has its own force. It's its own power. Romans 1 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Gospel is doing something. And then you begin to sense, and some of you know this, especially if you're in that category of people who are like, I thought I knew what it meant to be a Christian. And then you start to experience the power of Christ. And you sense that it's dealing with you. Like, you sense it's messing with you. You sense that you thought you knew what was going on. And a real Christian is a person who grabs it and has a sense of it. But what we'll find out is, if, if I read this right, a real Christian is one who is grabbed. One who has been clutched. One who has been chosen, it says here. And the power of God in the gospel comes to us. It says, you were called, you were chosen. Some things come to you, and as a result, now you believe. Something that comes before you don't just take it up. Something actually was moving towards you. In the earliest stages of this, like you, you get disturbed, right? And here's here, this is this is a good thing. I would tell you this, like even right now, like if I, I say who Jesus is and how powerful He is, it disturbs you, and you know, like oh shoot, if Jesus really is this, then oh man, there's all this other stuff that ugh, I'm gonna have to let go of. If I really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, oh, I don't want to do that because I know what it's going to cost me. Oh, you know, if I really start to love and follow Jesus and receive what he's done for me as a gift, as a new identity, oh, it's going to cost me my friends. They're going to think I'm weird. You get it? It starts to disturb you. It starts to mess with you. And I want to encourage you. That's a good thing. If you leave here disturbed, you're in a really good place. Right? A little bit unsettled, like I'm not sure what happens next. You're in a really good place. If you leave here undisturbed, you leave here looking and thinking exactly like you did when you came in, I want no to encourage you, you're the one that's in a dangerous place. You're in the one who's unaffected because you've assumed you know. And the gospel hasn't really come to you. And regardless of what you may say about what you think of Christians, or regardless of what you think about yourself as a Christian, you have not become a biblical Christian. The gospel has not come to you. And the evidence, how do we know? Because it has no power. Oh, maybe you got it in Word. Did you catch that? Maybe you understand it. I believe this. I believe in God the Father. I believe, right? Maybe you could recite it since you were a little kid. But if it doesn't bowl you over, if you don't leave a little bit unsettled, wondering what should happen next, friend, it hasn't come to you. And I want to encourage you. I want want you to see it for what it is. I want you to see Jesus for who he really is. It ought to mess with you. Listen to these words. C.S. Lewis in the closing of a radio address. There's kind of a paraphrase here I'll give to you. He considers the coming and the imposing nature of the words of Jesus. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus and see if it disturbs you. He paraphrased some of these words throughout the Gospels. Jesus says things like this. No one, no one can reach ultimate reality except through me. If you try to retain the rights over your own life, inevitably it will be ruined. But it's only if you give your life away completely to me that you will be saved. If you're afraid of me, When you hear this call, I will look the other way when I come again as God without any disguise. said things like, if there's anything keeping you from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it's your eye, pluck it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. Nothing, nothing is worth losing me. So come to me. Whatever your load is, even if it's your sin, I'll take it off of you because I am life. I am the resurrection. I am the new recreation. Don't be afraid. I've overcome and and rule over the universe. And to the crowds, he says, eat me. Drink me. Because life apart from me is death. You get it? C.S. Lewis says then, what we make of Christ in the end isn't the issue. The issue is entirely what he intends to make of us. You feel it? Does it disturb you? Does it seem bold? Does it seem radical? Now you're getting it. Now you're beginning to hear it. Now, you're, now it's not just word, but it's power. It's, it is, a, it is something, it's a declaration. It is a, something that God is doing. It is a weight. Ultimately, that glory is something that weighs down on you. Are you disturbed? Right? Are you disturbed yet? Because in the end, if you're thinking like, well, man, they really are overdoing this Christianity thing. I and mean, if I do that, that could be really a bad sign. And friend, the gospel hasn't come to you. It hasn't come to you yet. And so he says, "Like we see here the gospel coming to you, and it's in its purest form. And I'll wrap up thinking in this way. The gospel in its purest form, its word, its own impact, its power, its divine comfort, the spirit of God working in it, its pure dependence that results in actual conviction. We don't dress it up. We don't dress it up. In fact, we dress it down. The gospel, what Christ has done for us, is the power of salvation. Paul tells the Corinthians, it's of first importance. I want to remind you, it's the thing that called you, it's the thing that you're standing in, it's the thing that will hold you. You can't hold yourself. What God has done for you in Jesus is strong enough to hold you and save you, but you can't do it yourself. And the way we adorn the gospel is we just get out of the way. The way that we adorn it is we just get out of the way. Think of it this way. Just recently, uh, someone in a region one Miss America, right. Now I personally have like a kind of a disgust towards like kind of a very subjective view of beauty and beauty pageants, right. For some, some reason it feels a lot like, I don't know if you were, maybe if you were like me and you happen to go through like 4-H and FFA, it just seems like the way they judge these animals is kind of the way they're judging humans. I have a problem with that, okay. Just, just my issues, I'm seeing a counselor, okay. So like but there's, there's just kind of they're, they're judging people on a very subjective view of beauty, right? It's very subjective. Like I think this is beautiful, and so and and we're all supposed to kind of agree with that. And and here's the thing that can be very oppressive, right? It's like if you're not this, you're not beautiful, and it's like I, I got a problem with that, right? Again, because now we're I'm all the way back to FFA, right? Just, what, what's going on? But here's one thing I would say: if if you're going to do that, if you're going to sign up for that, right? If you're gonna if it's going to be a beauty pageant, right? Here's what I've said, this is, again, if if you're going to do it, I don't think you should do it, but if you're going to do it, if you're going to have a a pageant to measure people's subjective beauty, beauty, right, you shouldn't dress them up. It should happen at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And whether it's like Mr. Universe, right, like, you know, wearing like a lot of spray tan, like, I think you should remove all that, and at four o'clock in the morning, like, Miss America, just just line them all up, they roll out of bed, and you're like, because if you're beautiful... At 4 o'clock in the morning, when you haven't put anything on, friend, you're beautiful. Like, you, wow. Right? Like, like, like I mean, it, I, 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 I'm not beautiful, but I look a lot better right now than I did at 4 o'clock in the morning. Right? And there's a sense in which if you want to really measure its beauty, how about you not dress it up? How about you not put a bunch of stuff on it to, like, accentuate things? How about you just pull it all off and just see it for what it is? And that's the kind of beauty and weight and glory that we find in the gospel. Maybe for some of you it's like this. You won't see this at a really nice steakhouse, but a kind of a medium-grade steakhouse. Have you ever done this? You go in and order a prime ribeye. Now, for some of you, I know that's disturbing. Okay, uh, an organic tomato, right? It's like an unadulterated, an angel picked the tomato and handed it to you. I don't know, right? That for you, Right? For me, it, for, I know that's maybe for you. For me, it's like a prime cut of ribeye, right? And they bring it out. All right? And I, I want it rare to medium rare because, yeah, yeah. Don't burn it. Stop it. Stop doing that, right? And they bring it out. And the waiter says, Can I get you any A1 for your steak? No! N- no! A friend of mine told me, like, you tell me that cow's name so I can thank God for it and eat it. Because here's what I would push on you. And this is, I mean, again, I, I love you, and this, is, exists, this, this quarrel exists in our own house. Should you put anything on a steak or not? Okay, you know. But here's what I would tell you. If you want that, you want the ketchup and you want the A1 on your steak. And I'm just going to push on something. You don't love steak. You love A1. You don't love steak. You love ketchup. I, don't me wrong, I, lo- I love those things too. I love ketchup. But in that moment, the best way to enjoy something is probably in its purest form. You could add some stuff to it. But the best way to dress it up is to get out of its way. Friend, this is what Christ has done for us. This is, it has power. When that word is declared, it hits you it means something and you and you can't avoid it and friend if you need to dress it up if if what christ is done is not enough if that is insufficient for you and you're looking for something else if his word over your life isn't good enough then friend stop calling yourself a christian but if that if that gives you joy, if the thought that a good and loving master has sovereignty over your life and is guiding your steps towards what is good and right and grants you ultimate joy, then friend, join me. Let it bowl you over. Let the power of what God has done for you in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that called the dead Jesus to life and presented himself to hundreds of people, let that power begin to shape you. Let it begin to bowl you over. Don't push back against it. Friends, as a church, then this means that we're like, hear me now, we're like a broken record in a land of hot hit singles. And all the world is clamoring for something new, innovative, and we are these people that don't adorn the gospel by dressing it up. We just get out of its way, and we let Jesus work. And we sound like a broken record. We're like a band that plays one song all the time, over and over and over again, on repeat. And the minute you find yourself wanting, like, hey, could you play another song? Friend, that's the, place, that's the place where we turn up the volume and sing it louder. Because this is the power. It's not in you. It's God's love demonstrated for you that while you were dead in your trespasses, while you didn't deserve it, you were chosen and called out of darkness into marvelous light. You were called out of a kingdom of darkness and transformed into a family, the kingdom of a beloved son, Jesus. And that's not just a word to think about. That's a power that grants joy forever and ever and ever. Now let's pray. God, we thank you for this power. I thank you so much for the power you've demonstrated even in my life that I did not deserve. The power you have demonstrated to redeem me. If there's someone in this room where that just seems hard to believe, would you, would you just comfort them now? Would you begin to encourage them? Those doubts are natural. Those, those questions are extremely natural. It is not easy or common to look at the claims of Jesus as Lord and be unaffected by them. So if there's someone in this room that just stirred with skepticism and questions, would you just comfort them? Just let them know even now those questions don't scare you. You're not, you're not going to abandon them for those questions, but instead you're simply letting the word of your love for them be received as power. And here's what I pray for them. I pray that even now as they're asking some of these questions, God, would you disturb them? If there's some in this room and they're, they're looking at Jesus with skepticism, they're weighing his claims against other claims that someone else would make or that we would make, would you begin to disturb them, disquiet them, make them feel terribly uncomfortable until they wrestle with the power of the claims that Jesus is Lord. And he is not a Lord that destroys, he is not a Lord that sends people to die for his cause, he is a Lord that lays down himself for the cause of his kingdom. He's the Lord, that becomes destroyed in our place. Would you disturb us with this? Maybe for the rest of us, the gospel hasn't really come to us. We think we know and in word, we begin to understand who we think Jesus is, but maybe what we lack now is a gospel that comes to us, that shakes us, that is, we experience as power, as weight, as glory. Would you begin to open our eyes and fascinate us with how weighty and massive this is? Dazzle us with how good and perfect you are. Astound us with how amazing your grace is towards us. Blow us away with the peace that doesn't make sense in a world that is broken and fallen. Do this through the power that is demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.